So today we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 38, parts of 39. Some of you may follow golf, and if you do, you may have heard the name Lucas Glover lately. Lucas Glover is a golfer, professional golfer from Greenville, who many years ago was pretty good. Uh, won a major. In recent years, in spite of being near the top in terms of driving the ball, landing it in the fairway, getting it on the green, he had not won in many, many years because he couldn't putt. When I say he couldn't putt, he really couldn't putt. He was missing putts of less than a foot, things that you would kick in and game of miniature golf. He was desperate to find something. His agent had heard of an Atlanta Braves pitcher who just seemingly lost it, had the baseball equivalent of the yips, found a Navy SEAL who had helped him figure some things out psychologically and so forth. And so his agent ask him to talk to to Lucas. And that got him thinking, you know, what can I do different? I've tried everything else. And he tried something and it worked. And they asked him, he said, I made up my mind that something was going to change. He said, I was going to try the long one, meaning that he was changing from a traditional putter to a really long putter that you swing totally differently. He said, if that doesn't work, I was going to try to putt left-handed. And he's not left-handed. Quoting again, that's how far down the road I was. Nothing I did worked. Nothing I practiced worked. The brain was just fried. Ten years of dealing with it and not understanding it and not realizing it or not comprehending how it could happen, that I could lose just all feelings over a 10-inch putt. It was frustrating. I heard an interview with him on the radio, and it said, When things got so bad, there was a certain clarity that forced me to make some changes. So today, we're looking at a chapter that, about a chapter and a half actually, that is potentially some of the most depressing, tormenting set of verses you'd want to come across. Yet, it appears to be designed for public consumption. It got me thinking, why is it that we don't talk about the bad stuff in our worship songs? Why is it all great? Why is it always sometimes seen sugar-coated? So today I want you to think about the potential benefits when you're at the bottom. As we go through, you, some things may occur to you of benefits when you've been at the bottom or when you've known someone that's been at the bottom. I'm going to ask you to write those down and that'll be for next week. I'm going to read Psalm 38. I'll try to do it quickly. Once you get a feel for the whole thing before we look at it in sections. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. 
My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the days I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me in the light of my eyes. It has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague when my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. If I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongly. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I think if David, I'm taking a bit of liberty here, but if David lived today and was susceptible to the things that trip up many people today, and he wrote a song about it today, I think it might sound something like the song I'm about to play. This is by a guy who's had a very long history in and out of jail 10 or 15 times between the ages of 14 and his 30s. He seems to be figuring it out. If you look at kind of the scope of what's been talked about, he does appear to be a work in progress. But I want you to hear the emotion in this song. I want you to hear the despair in this song. I want you to let words like, I'm a lost cause. Don't waste your time on me. I'll let those kind of ring in your ear and really settle in with this concept of what it's like to be at the bottom. Uh, this is a multi-genre singer. It goes by the name of Jelly Roll. And I want you to see what you think. One, get the lights. Don't waste your time on me. 
I think there are several questions that this passage that we're going to look at can answer. Where am I? What have I done? Or in some cases, it might be what has been done to me. Who is for me? Who is against me? Who can help me? What do I do next? And what am I waiting for? Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. One of the things when you're at the bottom is that it forces you to take stock of your situation. You can't read this passage without being very aware that he has taken inventory of what's going on. Where is David? 
Verse 3, he is physically ill. No soundness in my flesh. He talks about my wound stinking and fester. I don't know if you've ever taken care of someone with a chronic wound, but I have. And you know it when you walk in or when you walk in the exam room or the, uh, the uh, hospital room, uh, you know there's a wound there. Uh, you haven't seen it yet, but you know it's there. He says, my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. So he is, we know early on, we know he's physically ill. We also know that he's emotionally exhausted. Look at verse 8. It says, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He is not in a good place. Being at the bottom means that you have to take a really good hard look at where you are. Why candy coat it? What good would it do? It's just you taking stock of your own situation. No need to lie to yourself. Just realize the situation that you're in. He says he just can't carry on anymore because of the, the heaviness of his burden. Like a heavy burden, this is verse 4, they are too heavy for me. This same passage, verses 1 through 8, also forces you to evaluate what have I done to get in this situation? In broader application, sometimes it might be what has been done to me. But in this case, it's what have I done to be in this situation? And you figure out that, that he understands that part of his situation, at least, is his own fault. It says, rebuke me not in your anger. This is verse 1, nor discipline me in your wrath. Verse 2, your hand has come down on me. Verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. It says, my iniquities have gone over my head, verse 4. Verse 5, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. He feels the discipline of the Lord. He has realized that his situation is a result of God disciplining him, of having his hand heavy upon him, there's no other way to interpret it. So when you're at the bottom, you have to think, is there something I've done that has contributed to me being here? Am I suffering because God is wanting to teach me something or get my attention? Now, immediately, there are going to be those of you that you can't help but react about this. So it raises a bigger question, which I'll go ahead and touch on briefly. The concept of what are we to think about the discipline of God? I'll just mention a few things. First of all, the discipline of God is a reality. It is something he does, in other words. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. We've all seen parents disciplining their children. Why do they do it? Because they love them and 
They don't want them to either get in trouble, develop bad habits, hurt themselves, hurt somebody else. There are a lot of reasons, but you ultimately discipline your children because you love them. Those might say, well, that's an Old Testament thing. Well, the writer of Hebrews thought it was good enough to steal. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he starts quoting, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. End of the quote. Going on with Hebrews, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, point number one, what are we to think about the discipline of God? It is a reality. It is something that he does. It is something that he does because he loves us, just as any good father would. There you go. Now, does that mean all suffering is a discipline of God? No, it does not. Point number two, I think when you're under the discipline of God, it's probably something you know through the power of the Holy Spirit. David has figured out this is God's hand on him. And I think although when we're in the midst of suffering, it's in, it's in our best interest to ask the question, how are things between me and God? Is he trying to tell me something? And Hebrews says that is going to be the case sometimes. We recall the example from 1 Corinthians that were being flippant with the Lord's Supper. Not only were, had some of them been disciplined, but some of them had been taken out. Some of them had been killed. So, it does happen. But it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Not all suffering is from God. And you can go for some quick examples to two parallel things in John. John chapter 5 has a story um, I'll read it. This is John 5, 8. Uh, Jesus encounters a man. He says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jew said to the man who'd been healed, it's a Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he said, the man healed me. He said, take up your bed and walk. Not recorded here, but I'm pretty sure the guy said, so pretty much I did what he told me. That's not in here, but I think he said that. And then they wanted to know who said it and so forth. Verse 14, Jesus goes back and finds a guy later. They see each other in the temple, and Jesus says, I see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Something about 
the condition that made him paralyzed had something to do with his own sin because Jesus calls him out on him and says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. But in John 9, he's passing by. Verse 1, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, sometimes there's suffering we experience for the glory of God. We can't explain it. We don't understand it. There's a nice little article I'm going to ask Mom to put a link in the uh, notes uh, by um, Pastor D.A. Carson, uh, seminary professor, uh, excellent uh, answer to this question of how do we interpret God's suffering, and he points out several examples where we simply don't understand what God is up to much of the time, but that it's not always about discipline. Back to Psalm 38. Verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. So we talked about where am I and what have I done. Here we have the idea of who is for me. Being at the bottom means that you're forced to evaluate who your true friends are. Who is still calling? Who is still hanging around? Who is still reaching out occasionally? Who is there when you reach out to them? Being at the bottom, one of the benefits is that you know who your friends are. Looks like I'm going to have to pick up the piece. Verse 12. And I'll just say, though, he realized that even his closest friends, even his relatives, did not want to be involved with him. It was going to be way too messy. But he was able to see who was still there and who wasn't. Verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin. They meditate treachery all day long. If verses 9 and 11 ask the question, who is for me? This asks the question, who is against me? Who are my enemies? It seems strange, but there really are sometimes evil people in the world who really want bad for you. I talked to a patient not long ago, and she said she was having all this anxiety, and, and she was a new worker in a very small but public-facing job, and her co-worker said, gotten pretty used to being cynical and not trying very hard and just doing the basics and getting by and she was putting her heart into her work and doing a good job and was getting a lot of accolades which her co-workers were not getting and they started to attack her they started to just give her a really rough time in all the different ways that you could imagine sometimes there are real enemies but we all always have a spiritual enemy. We have an adversary, the devil. First Peter says in, verse, in chapter 5, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So I don't think it's any accident we have some of these concepts that kind of congeal together. One is this concept of, uh, hey, I know there's a lot of anxiety going around. Two, you have an adversary. Resist him. Be firm in your faith and understand suffering is a universal experience. I didn't put it, but maybe being at the bottom reminds you that at some points in time, most of us have been at the bottom. Verse 13. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, I do I wait. It is for you, O Lord, my God, who will answer Let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips, for I'm ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. People just waiting for something bad to happen. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. My foes are vigorous. They are are mighty. Many of those who hate me wrongfully. So there's this tension here. He knows some of his trouble is his own doing. Some of the trouble is his own sin, but he knows there's some tension here because there are times when he's done good things and he's still been accused wrongfully. So, you know, it's, I mean, the rock in a hard place, he can't win. Verse 20, there are those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. Don't forsake me, Lord. Oh, my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Sometimes you have to think about, at the bottom, who is it that can really help me? It makes you think about your relationship with God. How many pagans have gotten in some emergent situation and said, Oh, God, help me. Maybe it's a, some cultural imprint that they do it out of habit. Maybe they saw it in a movie, but... There are times of desperation that bring things into focus, bring in some of this clarity that in some small way Lucas Glover saw that made him say, I need to get some help from somebody different than I've been getting it from. And so here we have the question, who is it that can help me? Charles Spurgeon captures this transition And he summarizes this whole psalm in this way. Rebuked I must be, for I am an erring child, and thou art a careful father. But throw not too much anger into the tones of thy voice. Deal gently, although I have sinned grievously. The anger of others I can bear, but not thine. Chasten me if thou wilt, it is a father's prerogative. Endure it obediently. I'm sorry, to endure it obediently is a child's duty. But oh, not turn not the rod into a sword. Smite not so as to kill. True, my sins might well inflame thee, but let thy mercy and long suffering quench the glowing coals of thy wrath. 
Let me not be treated as an enemy or dealt with as a rebel. Being to remembrance thy covenant, thy fatherhood, and my feebleness, and spare thy servant. Chapter 39. I won't go into it, but there are a lot of people who feel because of some of the textual uh, um, references that chapters 38 and 39 flow directly into each other, and that's the way I'm going to treat them. Verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. He is in this situation. He's decided the best thing to do is to keep his mouth shut. He's literally biting his tongue not to say anything. He can't stand it. Finally has to say something. You get the idea that that didn't go well either. What I got out of that is that being at the bottom forces you to wrestle with the emotions and forces you to think, what do I do next? In his case, do I say something? Do I not? What do I do? Sometimes in the bottom, you have to grapple with what to do and when to do it. There may be some doubt as to what to do, and there may be a lack of power to, to feel like you need to do something um, about it. But at the same time, it might soften you up a little bit. It might make you more willing to accept help from somebody than you would have in the past. What do I do next? Verse 5. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil, and man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It's interesting in this whole transition that he starts to ponder just how limited his days are, how short life is. It appears that forcing, I'm sorry, uh, being at the bottom forces you to understand that your time on earth is limited. Or put another way to answer the question, what am I waiting for? I'm at the bottom. What am I waiting for? I've got to do something different. I found a commentator who I'm going to quote. He starts to quote Calvin, who then quote, and then later he quotes Spurgeon, who himself quotes Shakespeare. I think this is... like a movie. According to Calvin, this is where David, the section I just read, this is where David begins truly to pray. By the time he gets the word shadow, the psalmist means that there's nothing substantial in humanity, but that he is only, as we say, a vain show and has, I know not how much of display and ostentation. That's what Calvin said. 
the writer says, people disquiet themselves in vain. This is one of those that probably made more sense to me when I read it than when I speak it, so I'm going to skip it. <laughs> but he does quote um, the section where Spurgeon quotes Shakespeare is uh, the famous line from Macbeth, who says, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So as Macbeth is grappling with the end of his days, uh, we have David grappling with the end of his days. And I think the lesson is, here I am. Something needs to happen. Life is short. What am I waiting for? I'm going to close. Next week, I want to hear your stories from the bottom. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for David pouring his heart out to us. I thank you for the times when you have had your children at the bottom through circumstances or perhaps through discipline. We thank you that no matter what, that you are with us. And we thank you for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.